You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Today is Sunday, July 3rd, week 12 in Romans, the Declaration. Paul Patterson is with us today at the Moscow campus, diving into Romans chapter 9 and its discussion of predestination, salvation, and redemption. Morning, Real Life, how are we? That was better than first service. Thank you. I appreciate that. Hey, I'm Paul. I'm the high school. Sorry, not high school. I'm still, I'm still getting used to this. I am the Moscow Student Ministries coach here at Real Life, and I am excited for what we're going to be talking about today. Bless you. <laughs> we uh, I just got back from vacation this week and then uh, also went up to middle school camp, and I've been predestined to preach on this passage, so I'm excited. It's going to be good. As way of review, though, Uh, Paul has been spending the first eight chapters of Romans building a case. He's been talking to these Jews and these Gentiles who are trying to figure out how to do this Christian thing together. And he starts with Romans talking about it doesn't matter what moral standard you adhere to because you will fall short. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter how, what moral code you adhere to or, uh, and how good you adhere to it. You will fall short. As such, both Jew and Gentile are under sin. And because of that, we're, we are all in need of redemption. We are all in need of justification. And the good news is that that justification is available to all. It's a matter of faith. Will we trust God? And if we will, then we will be declared in right standing with him. And then Paul answers some questions and he wrestles with what does it mean then uh, to live by the Spirit? What do we do with these sinful urges and all that? And then Paul ends his treaty uh, in Romans 8, talking about the redemption of all creation. How God's spirit has entered the world, how God's spirit is attempting to build a new humanity, trying to restore humanity and humanity's world again. And he ends his argument with this epitaph of God's inseparable love for you and for me, that there is nothing that can separate us from God's love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, nothing. But what Paul does next is almost unexpected. Like like if Paul was writing Romans and he was reading his rough draft, He could have cut out chapter 9 and 10 and 11 and gone straight to chapter 12, and we would have never known that there was something there. Like, he he could have gone from Romans 8 about the redemption of the world and God's ever-present love for us, right into Romans 12, 1, the great therefore of Romans. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I beseech you to offer yourselves as living sacrifices. It would have made complete sense. But instead, Paul is going to spend the next three chapters wrestling with something. And I don't think Paul is preaching at his audience here. I think he's honestly wrestling with something. We'll see that Paul is torn up about the thing he is wrestling with. Now, Romans 9 has been the chapter that countless theological PhDs have been focused upon countless books and podcasts and sermons. It has caused division in the church world for centuries. What we are not going to do this morning is we're not going to get into the debate about predestination. 
We are not going to debate about Arminianism or Calvinism or Calvinianism. We're not going to. All I'm going to say is that in the Hebraic worldview, paradoxes are okay. I think if you were to interview Paul and if you were to pose the question to him, is mankind saved because of God's divine action or is it a result of of mankind's choice? I think Paul would say yes. Like, it's, it's, like, in the Hebraic worldview, it's okay to have ambiguity. It's okay for things not to always be clean and cut and perfect and polished. God states that the revealed things belong to us, but the secret things belong to him. That his ways are above our ways. When I was talking to my wife about this sermon, she's like, it's like me. I'm like, What? She's like, well, I'm a woman, and you have no idea who I am and what's going on in my head. I'm like, oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, if I can't fully grasp another human being, how do I ever expect to fully grasp the ways of God? So that's really all we're going to say about the predestination debate. Really, what's going on in Romans 9 is not about predestination. It's about God and his redemptive work in the world and what is going on with Israel at the time of Paul's writing. To understand where this problem comes from, why does Paul jump into this? Why does he have this three-chapter-long parenthesis that he's going to wrestle with? Where does it come from? And I believe it comes from near the end of Romans 8 when Paul said this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In Paul's mind, there's this nagging question that he hasn't fully resolved If Romans 1 through 8 be true and God's redemptive work in the world, God's redemptive activity in the world be true, and if his love for his people cannot be separated, then how can you explain Israel's current rejection of the Messiah? How, how, what's the answer for that? Why is it that God's people are currently living in rebellion against him? If the very people God chose, the very people God predestined, the very people he called to, re- to usher in the redemptive work and to usher in the Messiah into the world, why is it that they currently are not part of the redemptive work of God? And as we see, this is, this is something Paul's going to wrestle with. Like, this isn't just going to be a a sermon or a theological argument. This is something he is wrestling with. And it's important that we don't take Romans 9 out of context. We have to take it with chapter 10 and chapter 11. We have to. And I'll talk about that a bit more later. We have to take it in context of Romans as a whole and all of Scripture as a whole as well. We can't approach Romans 9 with our theological bias on We can't construct our systematic theology and tell the Bible what it's going to say. Instead, what we have to do is we have to take off our rose-colored glasses or whatever color glasses and look at the text and look at what Paul is wrestling with 
And I, I believe if we do so, we're, we all are going to learn something this morning. So let's jump into Romans 9. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. So he's speaking the truth, if you didn't catch that. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. These two words, accursed and cut off, are actually one word. It's anathema. It means to be utterly damned. And Paul takes this position that he would, he would willingly give up of himself that his brothers might experience Christ, that they wouldn't be cut off from Christ. And this convicts me. And I'll share it with you so maybe you can be convicted too, so I'm not alone. Do I have this type of heart for people? that I would, I would trade positions with them that they might experience Christ. I was listening to an interview with a, um, an old theologian. He's 83 at the time of the interview. And he had a, a theological position that I was skeptical of. And so I was ready to argue with them and tear him apart and show how wrong he was. He wrecked me because he couldn't finish quoting John 3.16 without crying. The idea that people might perish and be cut off from the love of God. Like he couldn't, and several times during the interview, he just broke down. And I remember as I was driving, listening to this, I, I was convicted. I, I didn't have that burden for people that he had. I want to be the type of person that 83, I would be willing to say that I will trade positions with you that you might have life. I want to have that type of burden for my family, for my coworkers, for the lady at the grocery store that, does, that checks me out, for the single mom behind the counter at the gas station. I want to have that type of burden. Let's move on from that conviction to somewhat more conviction. Here we go. Uh, he would, so Paul wishes that if he could, that he would trade places with them, if it would do anything. And before I move on, because this is important for later, this sounds, and you could read the commentators, they all point out how this sounds like Moses. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, and God says, as we speak, the Israelites are committing idolatry. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to destroy all of them and start over with you, Moses. And Moses pleads with God, saying, far be it from you. No, but if you won't forgive them, if you will blot them out, then blot me out too. So Paul takes this mosaic approach with his brothers, and this will come up later. Paul says this about the Israelites. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, referring to the Shekinah glory that sat at the mercy seat between uh, the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, the glory that filled the temple It belongs to them. The covenants, not just the Mosaic covenant, but the Edemic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, to them belong the covenants. The giving of the law, the worship, and this refers specifically to the temple rituals. 
and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And the amen here isn't a finishing of a statement, like the way we do it. It's the, the truth. He is reiterating the truthfulness of everything he stated. Like, this is absolutely true. If that be true, then what about, then why are they currently in the position they are in? Why does Israel still reject the Christ? And he says this, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he quotes Genesis here, Genesis 21. And he, he makes a similar argu- argument earlier in Romans, and he does something similar in Galatians as well. Basically, his point is this. Just because you belong to the same ethnic and race of Abraham, just because you sh- share the same genes, does not mean you belong to the promise. That's not how it works. And Paul is alluding to, the, to our understanding of Scripture that we are aware that Abraham had another son. But that son wasn't from the promise that God made. Rather, it was from Abraham's own efforts that that son came. God said, no, I chose Isaac. It's from Isaac that my promise will be brought into the world. And if that doesn't make his point enough, Paul's going to go on and refer to Isaac's children. Paul says this means that this is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, referring to the twins she had, when she, when she had the children in her, though they were not yet born and had, not, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the younger will serve, sorry, the older will serve the younger. Even when they were still in the womb, God said, I have chosen Jacob to carry my promise. I have chosen Jacob to build the nation I promised Abraham that would bless all nations. It is through Jacob that I will continue my redemptive work in the world. It is God's prerogative, the way he chooses in whom he chooses to carry out his purposes. It's his call, his choice. And it's not just, it's not an ethnic issue. And then he says, as it it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Um, He's not talking about specifically an individual here, he's talking about nations. And I don't have time to talk more about that. We're gonna keep going. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If this is the case and it's up to God whom he chooses and Israel's currently living in rebellion, does that mean God is unjust? That God somehow, he didn't pick Israel, therefore, is that that what that means? And Paul says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He quotes from Exodus 33 here and the context is crucial. Paul assumes his audience knows their text. They would understand that this happens right after 
God told Moses that he's going to destroy all the people. And Moses pleads with God, and God changes his mind. And then God says this, that I will have mercy on them and compassion on whom I will have compassion on. And we are introduced to a God, not of wrath, but a God who will have mercy and compassion. Not a God who is quick to anger, but a God who is slow to anger and rich in love. And Paul's, what Paul is reminding himself of is the story of his people. That from the beginning, they have rebelled. From the beginning, they have denied their God. From the beginning, they have turned aside into idolatry and other things. They have they have always made mistakes. And every time they've made a mistake, God has always redeemed them and saved them. This is the story of his people. And so Paul sets up this example of Moses and Sinai in the rebellion from the very beginning of Sinai, reminding, reminding himself that God has always saved his people. And now he, in the Exodus context, he's going to introduce another figure, he says this first, though. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And, and we often want to read into this text the wrath part, but Paul doesn't put it there. He's focusing on the mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, in all the earth, not just to Israel, but to all nations. Once again, fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations. Now, the context of this quote comes in Exodus 9. And as you read through the Exodus story, we read about how after every plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart, that he refuses to let God's people go. And then at the end of the sixth plague, we read that all of a sudden the, the ch language changes. God hardens Pharaoh's heart this time. And right after that, God sends Moses to Pharaoh. And you should go read the whole discussion because it's fascinating. But God says, fine. If, you're, if you are going to harden your heart, then I will also harden your heart. Theologians call this ju judicial hardening. That God will step into a moment and, will, and he will say, fine, I will also harden your heart. If this is the position you're going to take, then I will allow you to take this position and God tells Pharaoh, if you are going to live in rebellion, if you are going to stay stubborn against me, then I will use your stubbornness to proclaim my name to all nations, to all the earth. I will use your stubbornness to proclaim my glory and to bring redemption to my people. And that's exactly what he does. And what Paul's point here is this, that in the utter irony of Israel's story, Israel currently is being Pharaoh. That in their stubbornness and unwillingness to recognize the Messiah, God will use that to make his name great. And we see this, and we see this explained like in the book of Acts where it talks about through Israel's rejection, salvation has been brought to the Gentiles. And this is, and this is what Paul, Paul's point, that God will use whatever means necessary to bring salvation to as many people as necessary. And he will, he will use us one way or another. He will either use us in our opposition or he will use us in our partnership with him. And this is a story that you could read throughout this, the pages of scripture. Like think of Samson. 
guy who really didn't give a rip about God or his calling, but God still uses him to bring salvation to his people. Sorry. All right, so let's keep going. So Paul then says this. Oh, no, um, go back. Sorry, Beza. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Like, if this be true, then I was predestined to be this way. Then it's been predestined that Israel would reject the Messiah. Like, then how can God blame me? How, how, like, it's not my fault, it's God's. And before we answer this, before we read what Paul's answer to this is, Paul's going to lean on an analogy. An analogy that the prophets use a lot. But the analogy doesn't start in the prophets. It actually starts in chapter 2 of Genesis. When God forms mankind from the dust of the earth. The word forms there is a word that's used for pottery. The, the, The same way that a potter forms a vessel, God forms humanity. And the, Israel, uh, the prophets will lean on this. And, and Paul, once again, is going to assume we know our text. He's going to assume we know the analogy he's about to use. That we're familiar with Jeremiah 18. You, sh- you need to read this on your own time. But basically, there, God shows Jeremiah a potter who's attempting to make something. And it states that the clay spoils, that, it, that somehow it breaks or doesn't turn out right. And Jeremiah watches the potter put the clay back into a lump and make something good out of it. And God says, can I not do the same thing with my people? If I declare destruction upon them, if they relent and they repent, can I not make something good out of them yet again? Can I not take the, the object that was set for destruction and recreate it into something good? Isaiah will use this analogy as well uh, in several places, but we're just going to focus on one. So Isaiah 45, you heavens above rain down my righteousness, let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide, let salvation spring up, let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds, among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to the father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the works of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus, which is a Gentile, which is great, uh, in righteousness. I will, make a, I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or for reward, says the Lord Almighty. Every time this analogy comes up, it's always connected to redemption and salvation of his people. Every time. So when Paul answers this question, like, who are we to blame if this is just the way it works? We have to understand the context behind the analogy that he's going to lean so heavily on. So let's go back to Romans 9 now. 
You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Like, it's, it's God's prerogative if he wants to make a gravy boat or a bedpan. Gravy boats are like the, the highest calling in pottery, right? Um, it's his prerogative. It's up to him. And it doesn't matter, like the bedpan is still necessary. I mean, I, it will be one day, hopefully. No, not hopefully. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a, bring it back. It's, it's a good thing. Like, I don't want to be a bedpan, but it serves a purpose. It has a point. And who are we to complain the way God creates us? Who are we to question his modes and his methods? Who are we to chastise him, to put him on trial for the way he brings redemption to the world? Who are we? Now, this analogy falls short as every analogy does because we're not an inanimate object. We can talk back. And oftentimes, God encourages us to talk back. But there's still a lesson that we must learn as being creatures, as being created, that we must trust our creator, that we must trust in his ways and his modes and his methods, in his wisdom and in his foresight. And this is what Paul is attempting to get himself back to. He goes on with this analogy. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if, in order to make his name great and to, to, make, to show the world his glory, he endures with much, much patience vessels of wrath? And the, the direct connection here is Pharaoh that he's, he's leaning on. Like God told Pharaoh in Exodus 9, he could have just wiped Pharaoh out. He could have snapped his fingers and just killed Pharaoh, but he doesn't. Instead, he's going to stand him up. He's going to hold him up to make his glory known throughout all the world. So what if God does that? Like, so, like that's his prerogative if he wants to do that. Now, this is a similar saying in 2 Peter 3.9 where, where Peter says, God is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. But he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And once again, Paul, in the back of his mind, is assuming we understand Jeremiah 18, that God can turn a vessel of wrath into a vessel of mercy. But Paul's point here is, even if he doesn't, who are we to question his methods? God is still bringing salvation into the world, and we may not like the way it's happening. We need to trust our Creator. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, and this is where kind of Paul wraps up this, this week, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So he uses this quote from Hosea to refer to the Gentiles, that this has been God's redemptive work from the beginning. 
This is what he has predestined from the beginning, that he will bring salvation to the nations. He will, and that they will be his people too. And then he, ref- and then he talks about Israel. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Paul's point here, and he's going to wrestle with this more in 10 and 11. Paul's point here is that God will always save a remnant. No matter what, even when we feel like the the entire nation has fallen apart and there is no one who pursues God, God will always preserve a remnant. And it's through that remnant that he will bring salvation back to the nation. And we can see this in example after example after example. That no matter what happens, God will save his people. And he'll wrestle with this more. Ultimately, Paul is trying to remind himself of the truth over and over again. And God's benevolence and his rich mercy. That God will save Israel. He may not know how. He may not know why. But he will. And this is where Paul ends in Romans 11. You can read 29 and following to the end of the chapter, where Paul will say that God has deemed all under sin so that he might have mercy on all. And he ends with this epitaph, once again, of God, of the riches, of the wisdom, and the knowledge of God, that we are called to trust in a God who saves. So as we work towards communion this morning, and the people go back, they're going to grab the communion and start passing it out. Hold on to the elements to the end so that way we can all take together. We have an open communion, which means if anyone wants to celebrate the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, if anyone wants to enter into covenant with him, we invite you to do so with us. As we work towards communion, though, we have some implications I want to wrestle with. Number one, predestination is not about a theological doctrine. And hear me, I love doctrine. I am a nerd. I think, I think it is a valuable thing to study. I, I think that is a noble calling. Like we are called to tear the scriptures apart and to chew on them and to, and to rightly divide it. But predestination is not about having a clean cut doctrine that we can debate about. It is about us trusting in God's redemptive activity in the world. About us trusting that he will choose the way he is going to make it happen. Second implication. God will use whatever means to save whomever he can, even if you don't like it. He will. Because this is the position God takes towards the world. It's that of salvation. He will do whatever it takes. He will use you even if you don't want to be used. Even if you refuse to be saved, he will still use that to bring salvation to someone. And oftentimes, God's methods will cause us to be wary. We will, we will question the way he is doing it. There'll be times it doesn't make sense. There'll be times that the people coming in to his covenantal people, we will not be comfortable with. 
Which leads to our third implication. Your labels may be wrong regarding those who are condemned and saved. From the very beginning, we have been incredibly good about creating our own lists of prerequisites, our own measuring rod that we measure people against. This is not our job. That is God's. It is God who saves, not us. It is God who determines who's in, not us. And the labels that we place upon people, we have to realize, are not from God, they're from us. We have to, we have to be incredibly careful that we don't do this. In real life, we, we do it. We, we are guilty of this. We will label people all the time. I label people all the time. Last implication, God will always save. He will. And this isn't some reference to universalism. That's not what we're going with here. What I'm stating is that God's position in the world has always been one of bringing salvation to it. God will always work for salvation. If there's any way possible that he can save, he will. And this is the story we hear of God. It's not about us finding God. It's about God finding us. It's about God tearing the room apart to find that which was lost. It's about him leaving the 99 sheep to go find the one that wandered away. It's about a father who will prodigally forgive his son and as soon as he sees him returning, will welcome him with open arms. It's about a God in Acts 17 that will work through nations and through histories and through boundaries and through times. And he will move the people and the nations that everyone might grasp for him, though he is not far from any one of us. It's about a God who, who is attempting to draw all people to himself. He will always save. And we are called to trust a God who will always save. And the truth is that for you, he's always been working for that for you. History is the story of God's redemption of you, of how God has been at work in the world to redeem you and me and us as a people. And there are some of you who are cut off, who are not within the boundaries of his love. What you need to know is that God has been relentlessly pursuing you, fighting to win you, that he is zealous for you, that his goal in the world is to win you, and he will do whatever it takes to make it happen. And there's other people in this room that can tell you some crazy stories about how God made it happen. My favorite is my brother's. My brother uh, was the middle child, you know, those, those guys. And he was a guy who just, he went through a lot of crap. I, and some of it was at my own hands, some of it was at uh, abuse. And he just took a position towards God, he just wanted nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with God. When I became a Christian, I tried my best to get him saved. I tr- man, I tried. I, I even threatened him that I would drag him into the kingdom if I could. 
And over the years, I tried and I tried, and to be quite honest, I finally gave up. My wife and I were coming back from vacation, uh, going on a vacation to Idaho Falls where, we, where uh, my, our family is. And I get a phone call from him saying he wants to meet. And so I sit down with him and an, another uh, one of his friends, and he tells me that he's come to Christ. And I ask him, how in heck did that happen? <laughs> if I couldn't do it, I mean, obviously, like, how, how did that happen? And his, this, was his, this was his answer verbatim, God won. And I just broke down crying. God will always save. And he'll do whatever it takes to save his people, whatever it takes. And we are called to trust in that God. We're reminded that Jesus, when he came into the world, was the image of the invisible God. That when we look at him, we see the character of God. We see what he's up to and what he's doing in the world. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. We're reminded of a God who takes the position of Moses and Paul, who doesn't just say that I will be wiped out on their behalf, but he actually did it. That he was accursed and cut off for our sake that we can trust in a God who will give of himself to save his people. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And he said, take and eat, this is my body. When we eat this, we remember him. Let's remember. Then he took the cup, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And when we drink this cup, we remember a God who took the wrath upon himself. There's no more wrath left. Let's remember. Father, we thank you that you are a God who saves, that your love never fails. And though your ways are higher than ours and your thoughts are higher than, than ours, we can trust in a God who is benevolent, who wants to bring redemption and healing to this world and to our, and to our lives. And that sometimes it doesn't always make sense. When we look at the headlines, we scratch our heads saying, what is going on? But behind the headlines, you are at work. And may we be a people that not just trusts you in this, but a people that joins you in this. That we would fight for the salvation and redemption of others that we would be a people who have been found by God and that we would join that God in finding others, that we would tear apart the house looking for that which was lost, that we would leave the 99 to go find the one that has wandered away, that we would be the type of people when the prodigal comes home, we run to greet them. Thank you, Lord, for your unfailing love pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from Real Life. If you have any questions or feedback about this message, you can always shoot us an email at comment at liferotp.com. Don't forget Global Leadership Summit Early Bird Pricing for Church Members ends July 12th. Please consider registering for this world-class two-day event that will energize you and impact the way you steward your influence at work, at home, and in the church. For more information, 
visit liferotp.com GLS. We'll be taking a short break from Romans for the next month for a special series we're calling Without Walls. This series will feature Aaron Couch along with the pastors and worship teams from real life churches around the region, visiting one another's campuses and sharing their unique perspectives on relational discipleship. We look forward to having you join us next week as Aaron gets it started.